And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Wednesday, August 24th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. I'm back from my little vacation. It was, you know, a vacation from the norm. I didn't go anywhere far away. People came to me. Yeah, staycation with visitors, which actually was pretty great. So happy to be back and uh, talking baseball with you, Eno, on this episode. we got a couple big news things we're going to talk about. Walker Bueller actually underwent a second Tommy John surgery, so we'll talk about the long-term implications of that. Uh, We learned that Fernando Tatis Jr., is going to have the shoulder surgery that we wondered about for a long time while he serves his suspension. So some major changes there. It looks like Cade Cavalli is going to come up and debut with the Nationals by the end of this week. And we might see a few other top prospects get chances here at the end of the season due to a rule change in the collective bargaining agreement that's kind of interesting. Uh, O'Neill Cruz broke StatCast again, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some difficult stretch run decisions that are starting to pop up. Of course, new pitchers and new players emerging in the pool each and every week and trying to figure out how much we trust those guys against some of the players we've been leaning on all season. That's among the more difficult things that we can be faced with this time of year. But we should start with Walker Bueller. Second Tommy John surgery for him. And when the Dodgers first announced that he was going to have surgery, it was kind of in the back of my mind as something that I thought was at least possible because they were not clear about what exactly was going to take place once he had that surgery. We have learned that is exactly what has happened. Given that it's his second Tommy John, it's a longer recovery window, more often than not for something like that. And given the timing, it doesn't seem like we'd see Walker Bueller pitching a game until the beginning of the 2024 season. Yeah, uh, and the uh, the chances that uh, it doesn't take or or take hold or you know, the chances of a, a negative outcome uh, are higher. I think I think we're on the level of you know, sort of five to ten percent for number one, and I think number two is closer to twenty five to thirty uh, percent. Don't work out. So definitely some risk there that wasn't there before. Um, or at least it wasn't as bad the first time he had Tommy John. Uh, what do you do in a dynasty league? I feel like it's a real tough one. I think I might even sell low uh, because not only is there the fact that you don't get anything this year and you don't get anything next year, uh, but then there's the fact that the first t- year back from Tommy John, you uh, lose command, uh, fastball command. That's been pretty well documented by research. So, you may not even get full Walker Bueller until 2025. He might be of best use to you as almost a prospect piece to a rebuilder. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think he's he's tricky because he's already 28. He just turned 28 at the end of July. So he's going to miss his age 29 season. He's going to come back at age 30 
with these concerns. After having had some velo loss, too. Right. So then you're talking about maybe age 31 when you're really excited about what he's able to do because he'd be far enough away from that second surgery where workload would be less of a concern. Maybe the command would be all the way back. You know, what kind of pitcher is he going to be like after going through all of that? Very fair question to ask. And I believe he's lined up to be a free agent after 2024. So there's going to be incentive for him to obviously get all the way back, go get that payday. And it could happen. It absolutely could happen. But yeah, that long-term league scenario you're describing, waiting this one out probably isn't a good idea. And you say that knowing the returns you're likely to get in a trade are probably underwhelming. So I'd be very curious to see what has been out there if he's been moved in any sort of dynasty keeper leagues that are out there. Is it for one prospect? Are you getting are you getting that kind of return back? Are you getting old players, the guys that are on the wrong side of 35 that might make you better right now, but who really have no long-term value? I would guess it's probably returns more like the latter than the former right now, given the timetable, given all these factors. Dynasty League, would you rather Walker Bueller or Miles Michaelis? Oh, Lord. Uh, I, Is that I'm a okay. decent would you rather? Old guy, I get that pitches now, and you get a better guy later? I mean, let's assume just a, a sort of neutral situation if I'm not playing no, for no, a title no. right you're, now. You're like, a contender. You're a contender. You have Walker Bueller. You need pitching. If I can't find something better, maybe that's the kind of trade I have to make because you want to win that title. Miles Michael is pitching pretty well. Yeah, I mean, sub 20% K rate, not really walking anybody. Doing it over a pretty good volume of innings, probably going to come in close to 190, maybe 200 innings by the end of the regular season, plus some postseason innings. He's worked, you know, at that level before. He wouldn't be like an amazing keeper for next year, but like look at your roster and be like, am I really keeping Walker Bueller in this situation for next year? Like, you know, it depends a little bit on how many keepers you have, how deep the league is, and so on and so forth. But you could you could use him as a as a trade piece if you still have time before your trade deadline. How much value do you put in rest of season projections today, giving you a baseline expectation for what you would expect in 2023? I mean, this seems like the starting point of next year's projection. And if you look at Miles Michaelis in that light, a 385 ERA, a 121 whip, a low strikeout rate, that's not a bad pitcher. Those are the ratios of kind of a top 40, top 50 starting pitcher. That plays pretty well. We know the defense behind him should still be good. Bush Stadium still should be a decent place to pitch. NL Central is not going to magically get a lot better in one offseason. It's just it's not built with teams like that. I mean, the the worst thing that could happen as far as the division context would be the Cubs going after multiple big free agents and trying to accelerate their rebuild by spending their way through it not impossible but even that that's still not a nightmare scenario for the other pitchers in the nl central what's a bigger factor though is the new schedule ah it's gonna do the segue sound yeah i mean (laughs) just one last thing real quick about michaelis is that um certain skills are stickier year to year uh, than they are in season so in season you could say he has good command uh everything looks good season to season you'd be like well how good is his stuff so his his seasonal projection may actually be worse than what you're seeing in season because his stuff level is lower however i do think uh the new season actually the new schedule probably is a net hmm for him might be a net negative 
it would be a slight loss for the Cardinals, right? Facing NL Central opponents less often is worse, for sure. The new schedule came out, and it looks like, you know, there's plus or minus a game or two, but it looks like you face other teams in your division about 10 times. And that's less than it was before. And so you're going to have, there's going to be more noise in um, matchups every given season because you're just going to, sometimes you get the Marlins and sometimes you get the Phillies. You know what I mean? And like, uh, it will be a less balanced schedule. Some people will call it a more balanced schedule because you're not uh, fighting in the division so often. But in some ways, it's a less balanced schedule because uh, there's more noise given on what the what random AL West team you got. Like, did you get the Astros or the A's? You know? <laughs> um, and so there's going to be more chaos when it comes to the schedule. You, But at the same time, if you are in the AL East, fewer times against the Yankees, fewer times against the Blue Jays, I'll take it. Do you give significant upgrades to all AL East pitchers or do you give greater upgrades to your more fringy players that would be in and out of your lineup in the current format right I mean like the here's here's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to say is that with someone like Garrett Cole he plays against everyone and you end up getting the good results and while his results will improve you're not playing that in out game anymore with the mm-hmm. formerly Jordan Montgomery types Jordan Montgomery situation is now different I think it, yeah, I think it, no, I think it more like Jordan Montgomery. I think it like Jordan Montgomery, Ross Stripling, uh, you know, uh, Orioles pitchers, Austin all of both. them. Yeah, the trust level for Orioles pitching as they keep going through their process, that goes up when you're yeah. not seeing as many matchups against the Yankees and the Jays, the Red Sox, Rays. Like that's a big difference. Yeah. And you just, it, it's like, it's, um, I mean, it'll be in the projections, right? Because every projection system has park factors and has strength of you know opponent factors and all that stuff. It'll be baked in to some extent. But really, it'll be that last little toggle that's in your own head when you look at a guy and you say, am I really going to take an AL East pitcher, pitcher right here at this point in the draft? Or should I take this guy who pitches for the Marlins, you know? And then you're like, oh, wait, I just took Eliezer Hernandez over Austin Both. I should probably have taken Austin Both, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think that's the kind of, uh, mental toggle you just have to be aware of next year and try to, uh, keep your mind fresh basically, because it'll be a fresh, fresh new schedule. It's not unlike the changes we already had to make those mental adjustments of, uh, NL pitchers facing the mm-hmm. H's, right? We already went through this where your, your in moment decision-making when you're on the clock with a minute or when a player is up for bid in an auction, you already had to make that switch once where you're not just favoring the NL pitcher because they face the pitcher spot in the lineup mm-hmm. anymore. That's we're talking about that kind it's of change because you're exactly right. Bias, right? <laughs> the numbers will have that. Yeah. The numbers will have that cooked in. All the projection systems will have the adjustment. You're just going to see so you're going you're to see some surprisingly I think good ratios for pitchers in the AL East compared to previous expectations. You're going to see some bumps for guys in the NL Central going the other direction. That's just going to be the nature of, of how this ends up playing out. And we're seeing it, uh, you know, we've started with Miles Michaelis, we've turned to Jordan Montgomery. We're seeing it a little bit in real time where you just take Jordan Montgomery out of that park. And yes, we don't know exactly how St. Louis is playing, but it's going to probably play easier than 
the New York, and then you take them out of that division and you and you put them up against uh, some easier lineups, and Jordan Montgomery all, all of a sudden looked like an ace. Um, I think there's some things going on under the hood. I'm not going to pretend that like there was zero changes and we shouldn't give uh, the Cardinals any benefit uh, for for their coaching process because they have changed his pit fastball mix a little bit. He's throwing the four seam more than the sinker. And um, for what I look at in my numbers, I think it's because he can command the four seam better. This is the first four, four start stretch of the season for Jordan Montgomery where his command, his location plus, has been above average for four straight starts. And I think back to Luis Garcia, the reliever, uh, who showed up there, and I think everyone had told him to throw the four seam because um, everyone's throwing the four seam and you need more whiffs, your reliever, whatever the reason was. But he could not command the four seam high in the zone. And the Cardinals said, just throw the fastball you can command, dude. You know, And he went to the sinker and had a lot of success. So I think there's probably an emphasis on command uh, in that uh, St. Louis organization when it comes to pitching. Which yeah. is weird because not all of them have great command, but at least within when you look at one pitcher, you know, throw the pitches you can command better. Yeah, one extra adjustment, though, for Montgomery. Beyond those other factors, I, I think it was easy to, for me to look at that park change plus defense and plus Yachty factor. Like that, that in and of itself, he could change, could have changed nothing and was probably going to get better results, but making one more change on top of that, that could be something that people might have overlooked because it's not as easy to see that or to account for that right away with that move to a new team. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Let's get to Tatis for a moment. He has decided to have the shoulder surgery that was kind of lingering in the background this entire time. You know, had the wrist injury, of course, that cost him this season, then got the 80-game PED suspension, which will cost him time into 2023. From a keeper dynasty, long-term Padres perspective, all, all the different factors that we think about with Tatis, does the decision to actually have the surgery now make you feel better about him in the long run. Avoiding surgery tends to be the the ideal outcome if if you can, but this seemed more like an inevitability anyway. So where do you fall on, on Tatis now that we have this added bit of information? I know that our friend Rob DiPietro had an early 2023 draft at the end of last week, I believe that was. I was gone, so the timing's a little fuzzy. And Tatis went at pick 4-2, so that would be, doing the math, 47 overall. That was before the surgery news was revealed on Tuesday. So I would imagine 
with added risk and recovery time, maybe this could leak even a little bit beyond a suspension. We'd probably see Tatis go even later now that we know that he's had this surgery. I think I'd want to get him in the back end of the top 100. I would want him to drop another three rounds. Yeah, so two to three rounds if you're in a 15-team league to get into that range. Here's my thinking. Dan O'Dowd was on the MLB Network saying that they did not have much success with this surgery in particular in his organization when he was running it. And then I have a name uh, that's on the forefront of my mind when I think of the surgery, which is Cody Ballinger. And that's a little bit more complicated because maybe the he had some weaknesses within the zone in terms of his approach. Maybe he had some holes that maybe Tatis doesn't have. However, if you look at them, they there are some similarities where you've got the sort of athletic peak, uh, high strikeout rate, high walk rate. Um, what if the high strikeout rate suggests that Tatis could be pitched to, you know, somewhere in the zone. He's got some sort of hole. And then uh, you throw in a weakness in the shoulder, he loses some power, and then, you know, of course, the elephant in the room, uh, you know, how, how long has he been doing these performance enhancers and, you know, what effect will that have? I think that previous study has has done a bad job of uh, not of figuring out how much uh, performance enhancers help, mostly because we don't know when they start or stop doing it, like I said, so... I would say big question mark with the performance enhancers, big question mark with the surgery, very small question mark with the plate plate approach um, is not too far off of Cody Bellinger coming off of surgery. Thinking about this a few different ways, uh, one with all the question marks, imagining a a Riddler jacket for yeah, yeah, yeah. when how he big, comes back how big, like that. Big, Lots question of marks, big questions little and little question yeah. marks. <laughs> little top hat with the question marks on it. All fair. <laughs> I still, I, I mean, in terms of the things that you just, the things you just outlined, and how much I'm worried about them. The shoulder surgery is now at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. The wrist injury, which was taking him a while to come back from, I think that's still second. I'd probably put the PED questions third, and put the strikeout rate fourth. Mm-hmm. Of of yeah, how how that's... how worried I am, how big the question marks actually are on those particular items. I think the other part of the Tatis profile compared to Bellinger that I think you're right to point out the similarities in terms of the surgery itself. The other thing that would give me some optimism relative to previous norms with Tatis is a lot of the value that Tatis brings also comes from the stolen bases. Bellinger runs. like He's he's had that stolen base part of his profile, but it's more, more balanced from a rotisserie perspective by comparison. There are more ways it can go right if Tatis loses some power but continues to draw walks at a similar clip to what he had pre-surgery. And you know, even if the K-rate doesn't get better, we're still talking about a guy with a 350 OBP potentially that could steal 30-plus bases pretty easily. He's still so young. I mean, after all this lost time, once he's back on the field, presumably in the first half of, of 2023, Tatis is still going to be just 24 years old, and that's a that's a reasonable difference even compared to the Bellinger situation as well. There's also, uh, I would add, maybe a scouting component uh, to this, which is, um, I, I'm trying to look at it now, but do you have an idea off your head where uh, Tatis's hole is in the strike zone? For some reason, 
in my mind, I could be dead wrong and everyone's going to laugh at me. Down and away for Tatis seems like the problem spot. Yeah. Yeah. Down generally. He's a good high ball hitter. Uh, down and in is... Uh, no, that's, that's good contact. Yeah, so down and away. Yeah, down and away. Which is, uh, I think, um, superior to having a high in the zone hole. It's a more normal place to miss. Yeah, right. It's a. It's also a, a place that you can learn just to spit on. I think, and then the pitcher will hit it sometimes. And you strike out, and the pitcher will miss it a bunch, and you don't strike out. Right. Where it's high in the zone. If you just can't hit, it's also down and away is more more specific. Right. It's like it's like it's a corner. It's, it's a smaller target. Whereas takes better Bellinger, command of a nastier pitch to hit it. Throwing it was, hard up in the zone is easier to do, relatively speaking. And then Bellinger was more like three quadrants high and not just high and away or high and in or something. So, um, yeah. So I think there is a a bit of a scouting component to where the hole is and how likely Tatis would be to be able to cover that up or, or be productive even with that hole. Um, cause I, there's not that many hitters that are great at low and away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's kind of one that he shares with a lot of people. So, um, yeah, right. The the strikeout rate is the least of the worries, but I, those all those worries add up to me not really wanting to spend all of next year, the first half of next year, on pins and needles, waiting for updates, pictures, grainy photos, grainy, grainy workout videos. Like I'm thinking of like the Ronald Acuna stuff, where he's like, oh, he's jumping around on some stuff, you know. Oh, he must be ready. You know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And Acuna himself has not been, you know, I drafted Acuna in the first round thinking I was getting a deal. And I don't think I'm getting first round value back from Acuna. Not yet. We talked about it, though. Maybe you get it for the final month of the season where the power catches up and then it all sort of comes together at just the right time for him as, as the Braves get ready for another deep postseason run. I think the, the would you rather questions with Tatis in long term leagues are more interesting than the short term leagues. We talked about the the ability to just say no, I, I'm not, I'm not playing this game with Tatis. If you're in a league with no IL spots, the calculus there is very different. If you're in a league with IL spots, that's a little bit different because the the per game production you will get without having to play as short on the bench that might be worth the risk. That point where those two lines intersect might make a lot more sense. You know, our early draft and hold and an FPC and those kinds of conversations are are different. Dynasty and keeper leagues usually have either IL slots or deep benches to keep usually. people from having to make a decision based on injury because you know short term it makes sense keep the the waiver wire with full of actual good players, make people make decisions about injury, and that makes all a lot of sense. I think in a long term league, you're thinking pick the right players, build the right type of team, and win. And you shouldn't have to drop a guy just because you're you're stuck because of injury. So um, I tend to think of a good would you rather for Tatis as being somebody like Dansby Swanson. I'd keep Tatis if that were the the one v one option that I had. Even if you were competitive, it's weird because the the difference. We just talked about Bueller and, and thinking about the the long term concerns there. It's going to take Bueller a lot longer to come back and then be himself than it presumably will take Tatis mm-hmm. to come back and be himself. Timetables are totally different, even though the severity of, of the surgery should not be overlooked. Uh, I, I would look at Tatis and say, I don't have this problem. I don't have many keeper or dynasty situations. 
I wouldn't have that same sort of panic feeling. And I realize there's a big difference in starting points between where mm. they're valued at today in the first place. But if if you were trying to get Tatis, if you're trying to sort of throw something out there to someone who wasn't panicking but was willing to listen, is Michael Harris a fair straight-up offer? Or would you rather just have Harris? Would you not even make that offer if you were the person that had Harris on your roster right now? Well, it's funny because I uh, was thinking about Bo Bichette as another would-you-rather uh, at the same position. And in some ways, Michael Harris uh, seems like a, uh, a Bo Bichettean-type player. Uh, very high uh, chase rate. Goes oppo a lot. Um, steals bases. Maybe... Uh, and, and Bo Bichette, to be fair, was really successful when he stole bases just last year. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. 25 out of 26 last year. 7 out of 14 this year. Um, just the chase rate alone makes me think that there's a possibility Michael Harris is overvalued right now. And if you look at the projections, which, hey, maybe it's too early in Michael Harris's career to look at the projections. Maybe he's still quote-unquote a prospect. But we do have almost 300 plate appearances of this poor chase rate of you know this barrel rate which is pretty good but of the swing strike the strikeout rate this walk rate so we do have information from him at the major league level his projection basically is pretty similar to all of them which is a 250 to 260 batting average very low 300s obp um and slightly below league average round league average power uh bichette right now as like his actual results versus his projected uh, 250, 260 average, uh, 300 OBP, and league average power. So, you know, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I I think you could get more for Michael Harris. No, no, you couldn't. You could more for Michael Harris than Tatis? I think that's, to me, it's a really interesting challenge trade. I think it would be a good use of Michael Harris. Okay, so that's a, a reasonable place to, to put things. I, I mean, I'm looking... Beyond the O-swing percentage, though, Michael Harris has an 11.9% barrel rate. That's better than Bichette's career rate so far. It's better than Bichette was when he first arrived in the big leagues in 2019. And the hard hit rate underneath that barrel rate is comparable to Bo Bichette's, even though since the start of last season, Bichette's a little bit higher than that level. I, I do think the similarities are real just in terms of the plate skills. Low walk rate for both players. I wonder, looking back at the, the minor league walk rates for Bo Bichette, even those are a shade lower than what Harris has done. So I wonder if Harris actually has a little more room for OBP than Bo Bichette does. And we talked about this on the 3-0 show. Caitlin McGrath joined us, so we had a lot of Blue Jays talk. With Bo, there, I, I think there's a legitimate question about having a hit tool that's so good that you do things that aren't necessarily optimal for outcomes with it. You can hit pitches you shouldn't be able to hit. And therefore, you don't drive as many pitches as you could if you were a little more patient. The question with both of these players is, how much can they learn that? And are you more willing to look at a player like Harris, who's earlier in his career, and have optimism about it compared to Bichette, who's been in the league for a few years and has used the same approach and been able to do really good things with it? I mean, this just this works for Bo Bichette. I don't know... If we can reasonably say they have equal hit tools, I don't think any scouting reports would have them on the exact same page. But looking future 55 for Harris, according to Fangraphs, future 60 for Bichette back when they put that up for him, they're not they're not that far off in that regard. 
So is it more correctable for a younger player or is it more, is it better to have the certainty that you can do enough to be productive over that longer stretch the way Bichette has been through the early part of his career? Yeah. Um, I, I was looking at his rolling. I, I, I often look at the rolling charts on Fangraphs to just get a sense of how that player's day-to-day approach to his chase rate has changed. And um, that's just interesting. Uh, he has a, He's had peaks this year where he's been chasing more than half the pitches he's seen outside the zone, uh, Harris. He's improved, but the valleys are still around 40%. So I think this is a actual real concern for Harris. Uh, of course, he could take a, a big leap in his second year like Acuna did in the same stat, in the same way. Uh, but given this set of skills that he's showing right now, uh, I think uh, there's going to be a little bit of regression next year. And I would also throw this out. There's an open-ended question. I don't expect you to have the answer. I don't expect anyone to have the immediate answer to this. But if we saw consistently better swing decisions throughout time in the minor leagues, would that matter? Or is just the the quality of stuff difference between high A, double A, and the big leagues so wide that that's not necessarily a bankable skill when you're talking about the quality difference in the pitching that we're, we're facing. Just as a comparison, um, and they're not exactly the same types of players, but here on this level, I think there can be a little bit of a comparison. Um, oh, my goodness. I think uh, Matt Olson just hit a grand slam. Yes, he did. It's 13 to nothing. Okay. Uh, Look at the rolling chart for Bobby Witt Jr. Bobby Witt Jr. came in with a very poor uh, reach rate, chase rate, whatever you want to call it. God, get rid of reach rate. Stop calling it that. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it was over 45% for the first 25 games of his major league career. There's been just a... It just cratered or just went down from there to where it's never been it's been higher for than than 40 percent for more than like two games at a time and it's gone all the way down below 30 percent uh for a 10 game stretch so when you look at his chart you know uh, for you youtubers and which way is the right way you're working on that i'm getting the chart i'll, I'll have it in a second right, so so bobby witt up and then down, 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 little up, down, 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 right? This is Michael Harris. Up, uh, down, up, down, up, down, 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 down. You know what I mean? So it's like, I would want to see over the course of your first season more of the Bobby Witt chart than the Michael Harris chart, right? Like, that's real improvement in in recognition of the strike zone. And I think that each time that it goes back up again, yes, uh, teams like other teams are scouting you. Uh, they're trying to, they're adjusting to your new found chase rate, and they're trying to tempt you somewhere else outside the zone, right? And so it goes back up again a little bit. And then Bobby Witt says, "No, no, 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 I got you. I know what you're doing. I know, I know you changed it from down over here to up over there, whatever it is, and it goes back down again." Um, Michael Harris is shows some adjustability, but if you just, you'd have to take that whole bottom part of Witt's graph and push it up like 10% to get Michael Harris's chart. Um, so I am biased towards seeing that sort of adjustability, uh, even in the, in their rookie season. 
I threw Bo Bichette on the screen right now, too, just so we could look at that for a moment. I mean, consistently high, right? There was a little bit of improvement there. 2021 is his second season. Early in the season, he's he came into the season with a, I'm not going to chase. And then he chased, 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 chased more and more the rest of the season. This year, you've seen some improvement. That's good. I'm going to get the Harris chart as well. Because I think the way you described it was probably fair and accurate, but also very difficult to visualize. Mm-hmm. Let's see. It looks more like Bo Bichette's first year, where like there is some adjustment, but it ends high, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that peak, if you're looking at kind of uh, where Bichette, Bichette was at the end of the year last season. at 55% in the last 20 games or so. That maybe was a little more of a warning than I realized. Harris has shown some improvement. I'm not going to pretend he hasn't shown any improvement. But those are still pretty consistently high peaks. If you look at it, that 45% that he's at right now is where Bobby Witt started. Yeah. Interesting, though. I, I do think um, because he runs and he's been so efficient, especially, and he's on a good team. I'm not trying to say he's a bad player. No, that's that's not what we're saying at all. I don't, I don't, he I don't might think be overvalued in drafts next year. There's going to be a little bit of regression. I might use him to buy Fernando Tatis, even with me being the one between us that might have had you know more doubt about Tatis's future. Yeah. So, I don't know. Fun to think about the future in, in these cases. And I, I just expect Michael Harris to get some significant ADP lift. I mean, why why wouldn't he? He's done a ton as a rookie to get people and we're always really excited. <laughs> All the time. All the time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I wanted to ask you about this. The Nationals are likely to have Cade Cavalli come up and make his big league debut on Friday. And we've had some reports in the time since we last recorded that the Diamondbacks are probably going to give Corbin Carroll a look at some point before the end of the season. It sounds like Gunnar Henderson could actually see a little bit of time in Baltimore before the end of the year. The one situation of these three that's unique, of course, Henderson, if he joins the Orioles, is joining a team that actually is within arm's reach of a playoff spot. Both Cavalli and Corbin Carroll will be joining teams that will not be in the postseason this year. But there was a change in the CBA that was designed to get teams to be willing to promote prospects sooner. And there are draft pick rewards for the team if they have a player win the Rookie of the Year award. Why does that matter at the end of this season? Because we've reached a point in the season where you can call up a prospect 
and he will not accrue enough days of service time to lose rookie of the year eligibility for the 2023 season. So I think what's happening is teams are trying to get a sneak peek at how big league ready their prospects are. If you get a look for 35 to 40 days, which is probably going to be about 25 to 30 games, depending on you know which team calls up which guys win, you can get a better sense with that snapshot of whether or not that player is in fact ready to be a great player from day one next season. And if that's the case, that player has a better chance of, of winning the Rookie of the Year award and bringing you back draft pick compensation. So I think this is one of those small wrinkles that's having a bigger impact on how teams are managing young players late in the year. I didn't really see this as something that was going to happen, especially for players on non-contending teams. Yeah, it's it's just weird how, you know, they make these rules and then you set the front office to it and you have to game it out and, you know, what's our best move here? Analytically, what are the analytics guys say, you know? None of it's really resulted. Have we, has it result? Has any of this resulted in us seeing uh, prospects, the best players in the in the minor leagues, in the major leagues, more often this year? It's helping. It's not perfect. It's better it's than it was. It's better than it was because under the old rules, there's no way you'd see a gunner or whatever. No chance we'd. Well, the only the only reason that could have happened previously is the desire to make the playoffs and seeing him as a clear upgrade over what about the old september roster rules we used to see prospects come up in september a little bit yeah and then you could just you know demote them longer to begin the next (laughs) season and then bring them up in mid-may instead of mid-april and preserve the year of service time that way and i still think there's a chance we'd have that if someone comes up at the end of the year gets this look falls on their face guess what extra seasoning at triple a is now easier to justify no we gave him a look he wasn't ready Right, yeah. There's still that. I mean, among the names you listed, just for fantasy purposes, um, I'm most excited about Gunnar Henderson. Um, I think there's a, a role for him. I know he's they, they had him playing like first base and stuff. Yeah, moving him around to the right side of the infield a little bit. Jorge Mateo, I know he comes he up every enough? week. I know we talk about him a lot. I really He comes up every week on Under the Radar. He's been very good for about two and a half months now he's actually playing well God, it's, not, three it's not just wins. the steals anymore he's got a league average batting line i and it's been even better if you look at if you, if you kind of cut the season so far into two parts the the more recent half has been better God damn you ian con <laughs> wow he's hitting 317 in the second half yeah He's got a 166 WRC plus in the second half. This is true. Although second half is a misnomer, right? This, that means post All-Star break? I mean, we can do the custom date range game. So it's game. only 101 plate appearances. Anyway, that's uh, better than I expected. So, so Jorge Mateo is a building block now? You could more reasonably look at Mateo in the same way that you've looked at other players that have emerged during rebuilds is... Is Mateo this year's version of Mullins, even though the war is not going to hit quite as much as Mullins did a year ago? I mean, I, I think you could probably make that case now. And I guess by moving him over to first and second, Gunnar Henderson, they're saying that his arm is not necessarily 
good enough for third because you know playing him over Ramon Urias and making Urias um, uh, you know a part timer with Odor or whatever or, or all around the mound seems to make more sense to me. Uh, any case, uh, Gunnar Henderson, I do like the walk rate. Uh, the strikeout rate has actually kind of fluctuated up and down. So that's an open question mark is how much contact he'll make. And so therefore, what his batting average will be. But uh, the power and speed seem real. And uh, I'd just be watching the swing strike rate when he comes up early. But I think I'm the most excited about him. Kay Cavalli, I just, he, he comes out of an organization um, that I'm unsure about their ability to develop pitchers. His strikeout rate is lackluster. Um, and his performance has frankly been sort of up and down. So I, I, I'm on a real wait and see there. I'm not going to put in a big, big bid if I have to buy him, uh, before I get any of my sweet, sweet stuff numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you don't have the, the minor league stuff numbers on Cavalli by chance. I was looking, I don't, I don't think he's in my minor league update. I think Corbin Carroll is actually a little mm. little more interesting to me than Henderson if I could only have one of the two. And that was something Al and I talked about earlier this week. It's like, can you actually stash both these guys? Not in many redraft situations, but Carroll is doing everything and he's running even more than Henderson in the minors. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's now 31 for 36 as a base dealer between AA and AAA this year. And that's in 87 games. It's not even a full minor league season so far for Carroll and that's coming with power average OBP K rates down with the move up from double A to triple A I know we've expressed a lot of concerns about the quality of pitching at triple A but you you love to see what he's been doing age to level especially with all the time he lost last year Corbin Carroll played seven games before having shoulder surgery last year still got promoted a level and blew through double A in a half season I mean he he looks like a special player so I think who are you demoting or who are you taking playing time away from? You've got Thomas Varsho, Stone Garrett, and Jake McCarthy out there uh, from in the outfield spots in DH. Do you just mix it all around? Mix it all around, and if you have to play McCarthy and Garrett less, that's totally fine. You live with that. I, I think McCarthy and Garrett are lefty-righty, so you could actually maybe. And, and McCarthy, you know, Garrett's 26 and McCarthy's 29, 25. But neither of them is was a really well-regarded prospect, so um, you could basically put them into a platoon and play Carroll every day, and then if Varsho or Thomas need a blow, uh, you know, you you got that extra outfielder. Play Carson Kelly a little bit less, catch Varsho a little more, a few ways to to Varsho make it work. More. Yeah. I uh, I think there's a little bit of a downgrade for everybody with regard to playing time if Corbin Carroll comes up. And particularly uh, when it comes to uh, Garrett and McCarthy. And, but, yeah, I'd be super excited. I think, uh, you know, Carroll or, or Gunnar Henderson are my number ones. I know Francisco Alvarez uh, was number one in Baseball America, but, A, that's a real-life prospect list, so they're going to give him value for uh, fielding, framing, blocking uh, that does not show up in your fantasy league. And, B, um I myself have heard some un- inconsistent reports uh, uh, regarding Francisco Alvarez's uh, abilities to her- handle certain pitches. Yeah. Man, hits the ball very hard, though, when he hits it. But yeah, I think there's a, a bit of a gap between where these other top prospects are for fantasy purposes and, and where Alvarez is going to be once he eventually gets that opportunity. 
We had a few questions come in that we're going to get to in just a minute. I just want to throw this other thing at you before we get to those. O'Neill Cruz hitting a ball 122.4 miles per hour. That broke the stat cast record. So Cruz now has a max exit velo that's above anything we've ever seen from Stanton and Judge and the guys that do this stuff more than anybody, which again, it's one way to look at a player. And I know we've talked about the the unique nature of, of O'Neill Cruz on a few different occasions, but clearly no reason at all to doubt the raw power given what we have seen now up to 19 home runs between the big leagues and AAA so far this season. And I know the slash line is rough right now, 198, 249, 401 entering play on Wednesday, but I do like the Pirates are are just riding it out and letting him get those reps at the big league level instead of trying to play the up and down game. I actually think that there's more of an Austin Riley situation perhaps coming for for Cruz than a Giancarlo Stanton situation, even though Cruz has now hit, you know, the hardest ball ever in the StatCast era. Um, and and so, you know, the Stanton comparisons are, are apt in that regard. But um, when you hear, uh, there's a good Rob Beer Temple piece about this. Uh, when you hear what Cruz is thinking about, what he's talking about, what the team is talking about, what, what they see, what people see when he uh, hits, he's stuck in between. And that is something that literally Austin Riley told me in the minor leagues once where you're stuck anticipating a, a slider when you get the fastball, you're stuck anticipating a fastball when you get the slider. And I think, you know, looking at his minor league numbers and adding that in and adding the Austin Riley comp, Riley also hits the ball really hard. I think that this is going to click for him at some point. I don't know when it's going to be, you know, is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? Is it, is it going to take a little bit longer? It could, but I do think it's going to click. Uh, I think another name that I think of is Jazz Chisholm, where you can focus on all the flaws and be like 38% strikeout rate, 16% swinging strike rate, you know, 51% ground ball rate. The, the hardest hit ball he hit was on the ground. Well, that's always going to be the case because you hit your hardest hit balls at basically z- at zero launch angle uh, and you trade, you learn how to trade uh, that oomph for loft uh, to hit homers in the, over the course of your career. I think Cruz has got everything to be a superstar, and I would I would put him in that Jazz Chisholm Austin Riley section where maybe it doesn't work out. I'm, I'm sure there's got to be some players. You, can you think of a player offhand? I didn't ask you to prep for that or anything, but I'm going to keep talking and give you a chance to think about it. But do you think of there's got to be other players in the Austin Riley Jazz Chisholm mold that didn't make it? Maybe even. Uh, Andy Marte, um, you know, who came up with the Braves, was a, hot, a top prospect, had some issues like this, and never really put it together. But um, I still believe in O'Neill Cruz. This is another, just another data point for me. Um, and um, I don't know how useful the projections are because I think he's either going to figure it out and be a superstar and blow past those projections uh, or not figure it out and play below those projections. So it really just comes down to the game theory questions and and cost will be a huge part of it. What is it going to take to get Cruz in, in drafts? Where is his ADP actually going to land? I think because he has more than one way to be very helpful to fantasy players, he's going to carry a much 
higher draft day price tag than you would expect ordinarily for a player with these flaws. So that makes them really polarizing. There's going to be people that are, yes, let's do it. Because if it clicks, it could be Riley or it could be Jazz or it could be Aaron Judge. I mean, Aaron Judge's first 27 games in the big leagues at the end of 2016, he had 42 Ks against nine walks, right? It was a 179, 263, 345 line. Comes back in his first full season. Hits 52 home runs, which he's probably going to do for the second time in his career this season. Seems like he's well on his way to doing yeah, that. Yeah, Judge is a good comp, too, just because they're so big, they have a bigger strike zone to learn, you know? Like, they, they literally will watch pitches that are balls be called strikes just because they're so tall. So you can dream on the potential, and you can dream on it happening quickly, because we do have a few guys who have done that. But he doesn't have to turn into Aaron Judge from 2017 to be very valuable where would you be comfortable taking on the risk, not knowing what the final six weeks of the season holds? If he starts to figure it out before the end of the season, which is possible, that kind of blows things out of the water. But let's just say that things look similar from rate stats today at the end of the season. Like that's that's where he kind of finishes things off. Where are you comfortable taking on that risk? Well, that's interesting. Let's see if I have my draft results for my main event. Because I did... Uh, put him on my main event team. Um, and I drafted him in the 14th round, 202. Might have been an overdraft. Um, uh, I could have gotten um, Eddie Rosario, Josh Donaldson, Nelson Cruz, Robbie Grossman, Adolis Garcia. Uh, Trey Mancini in that same grouping. Those would have all been much safer. However, uh, I wanted to take a shot at MI Gold, and and I was a little bit behind on that. And the next best middle infielder that got taken after him was Josh Rojas, Brandon Crawford, and Lisa Urias. And I thought Cruz represented more upside than those guys. But I would say, looking back, a bit of an overdraft, and I would love to get... Uh, O'Neill Cruz in a similar spot, maybe a little bit higher to ref- represent this. The fact that he's come in and done some good things, 175, 150, you know. Uh, Brandon Rogers went 162 this year and doesn't steal any bases. Yeah, I think the the players we need to be looking at are the other top prospects that came up and didn't have success right away. Jared Kelnick, right? He was probably a pick 150, 175 range player. That seems like the draft day 150 floor. exactly in my main, yeah. Right, that's the latest I think you're going to get Cruz oh. if things stay where they are. And I think there's a chance if he Don't does good that, things. I want him again. <laughs> what are you going to do if he creeps up into the 100 to 120 range? Because I love the players that end up in there. There's always veteran players, usually guys between about 27 and 30 years old. They have no playing time questions. They have very stable skills. And usually the wart is IL stint previous season, right? Long-term track record and then IL stint. 117 shortstop this year, Carlos Correa. 112, Dansby Swanson. Yeah, those are the kinds of players you end up passing on. 124, Jake Cronenworth. And 125, Ahmed Rosario. So you'd be passing on at least some of those types of guys or those guys, maybe even specifically, Willie Dom is 127. You'd be passing on them for Cruz. That's a little rough because those guys are easily more easily projectable and they represent less risk. 
But it does depend a little bit on my build to date, uh, to that point. If I got some boring, um, boring, good pick type, you know, middle infielders and I needed to, like like last year, I needed maybe another an infielder that represented more upside, then I could still see myself picking Cruz. What do you think? Some of these guys are going to go up. Some of these guys are going to go down. I think Ahmed Rosario might end up very similar spot around 125. Who would you take? O'Neill Cruz or Ahmed Rosario? I think I'd take Ahmed Rosario. Mm. Because Rosario, and I think we've talked about him in the not-so-distant past, does everything, including batting average. And that's an overlooked category. Run production is probably better than you expect. Power-speed combo. So I, But it's I, like... But uh, power speed light. I mean, O'Neill Cruz is going to out homer him and out steal him. Hmm. But he may do it with a two ten average versus a two eighty four. I'm changing, man. I'm getting old. I I, I like <laughs> I like oatmeal. Oatmeal. I really like oatmeal. <laughs> it's making me not want to call players oatmeal players anymore, or for me to just say, fine, throw some dried cranberries and, and walnuts or pecans in there and make your oatmeal more interesting. You know, ham think, and egger? Yeah, I like ham and eggs. Too. I, like everything. <laughs> I like all food. I'm looking at the Rosario. You know what? I think Rosario's power is a tick lighter than I thought. So I'd, prob- I'd probably still pass on a Med Rosario at that spot. I would take O'Neill Cruz over a Med Rosario if the prices are close. I, For some reason, maybe it's, I'm just throwing the Andres Jimenez power into Rosario's profile, which is not fair. And I think Jimenez versus Cruz is actually a tougher toss-up, a much tougher toss-up. I think when you, yeah, Jimenez might be, uh, but I think Jimenez might also go higher than that. This is, I think uh, Ahmed Rosario is a really interesting thing because you can see his max EV has gotten better. It's actually pretty decent. This year he hit a ball 115. So you could say, oh, the raw power is in there. I do think after you've given a guy 2,600 plate appearances at the big league level, you can kind of avert your eyes from the 55 raw power fan graphs gave him, you know, five years ago or six years ago, you know, or seven years ago, even at this point. Um, and then Max EV becomes less meaningful, uh, you know, as a descriptor of his potential raw power. I mean, he's, He's had a 51% ground ball rate his whole career. He doesn't seem like he's about to change it. No, he's not. So I, I'm firmly on the Cruz over Rosario side after the right. initial waffle. I finally convinced you of something. Usually you convince me of something. All right, all right. I'm looking at the the results from that that Rob DiPietro draft I mentioned earlier. Andres Jimenez did go in the early part of round six. That would have been pick 78. So there are believers that's was, out that's there. That's what I was saying, yeah. So where did Ahmed Rosario go? He, they only did seven rounds, or at least they only shared seven oh, rounds okay. so far, and he didn't get picked, which Rosario. makes sense. And Cruz did oh, not either go either. I don't see him. No, no, O'Neal Cruz did not get uh, not get scooped up. But I would imagine right around that round eight, round nine range of 15 teamers when people are going to start thinking about him for all these reasons. There's so many things he can do. If it clicks quickly, it's to the moon, which is, is really exciting. I think, you know, it's a good reason to pick oatmeal early is that you can be available for this kind of a pick at that kind of part of the draft. If you're taking if you're taking shots on Bobby Witt in the second round, then when it comes to here, you got to take a med Rosario. You know what I mean? Like when it like you, you can't take Bobby Witt 
I'm talking about last year's Bobby Witt and O'Neill Cruz on the same team. Right. I mean, you can, but then you're just that's risk on top of risk. I feel like, you know, you're just that's that's boomer bust, baby. Ah, <laughs> uh, who's the yeah. who's the equivalent of that? Gunnar Henderson. You can't next year be like, I'm taking. Uh, it's not Gunnar Henderson is not going to go where Bobby Witt went. Who's who's like a who's are like you a top sure? five prospect? Maybe I yeah, mean, it could be. Yeah, hold on. I'm going to take Gunnar Henderson in the fourth and O'Neill Cruz in the eighth, and I'm going to win this thing, baby. <laughs> That's the way I used to play, and it's amazing when it works, but it doesn't usually work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or what happens is. You have the team that's really exciting, and if you're on the radio, the hey, come talk to us about your team, and you're talking oh, about yeah, how great you think those to, guys are going to be. Talk to you. you took those big chances, and the only reason, the only reason you did well was because you did some other things well that were really boring that they wouldn't even ask they didn't you. Want about. to talk to you? About. <laughs> the, oh, you you crushed it with a few really old guys that ended up with bigger roles in rounds 15, 19, and twenty two. The, at the time you did it, you thought you were going to cut those players and you yeah. have to be right about two out of the three or all three, and they bailed it you was, out it from was the risk you the took fact on that earlier. Your last three picks were Corey Kluber, Jordan Montgomery. And <laughs> right. You, you tend to need to do a lot of other things right with the boring picks if you're going to go really aggressive with these, these early high risk, high reward type players. But uh, yeah, at Deadpool Hitter on Twitter, uh, no hyphens, no spaces if you're looking to see that board. It's back, I don't know, 15, 20 tweets. So. Some really interesting names sprinkled in there. A lot of very sharp drafters in that particular event. And probably a good indicator of what early NFBC drafts are going to look like, given the makeup of that league. Let's get to a couple questions real quick before we go. The first mailbag question had two players in particular about it. Yohan Mankata was actually a drop in a league. And he's been a strange player this year. Uh, top team cut him, and I used a waiver claim to give him a spin for the final month or so. Wondering if you guys are in or out on him getting back to being an above-average hitter. I'll be considering against other guys like Justin Turner and Jake Fraley for a final keeper slot. Wow, it's really, it's been a rough couple of years for Moncada to be down in old Turner versus Fraley versus Moncada for a final keeper spot to sort of decision. The speed seems absolutely gone. So I might actually take that flyer on Fraley, especially if it's a league that rewards OBP. I mean, he it sounds like it is. He's talking about being above average player. That sounds like positive WRC+. plus. The rest of the season projection for Moncada is 104 WRC+, plus, and that does not even account for the fact that he doesn't have steals, you know? So I think this is a, a player that was uh, very exciting and, and athletic and young and then uh, you know, he had a real bad time of it with COVID in 2020. Um, I don't, I don't want to speculate that that alone, you know, removed his athleticism. But in the meantime, now he just doesn't look as athletic, and the flaws that he had in terms of his contact rate and his approach are uh, are sending out much more than his athleticism. If you made me buy blind on one of Mankata or Fraley for next season, I would take Mankata. I think the playing time is safer. He's still a good defender. I'm really interested to see if he makes some adjustments in the offseason. The underlying numbers are not as exciting as they used to be. There's still a lot of swing and miss. He's walking a bit less. So you're kind of asking yourself, bounce back to what? 230, 240 with a, a decent OBP and 15 to 20 home run power? you got to be in a reasonably deep mix league to be pretty excited about keeping him there. So definitely not the no-brainer uh, pick up in that situation and hold that he would have been just a couple of seasons ago. 
It's hard to make decisions like that. Uh, and some love for Fraley. I mean, they're both 27, and this is the best swinging strike rate Fraley's ever had. This is the best strikeout rate Fraley's ever had. This is the uh, longest stretch of everyday run, I think. I mean, he's had some close ones in Seattle, but a lot of those plate appearances were accrued in a part-time role. Um, and, you know, players will tell you that you improve when you get given everyday uh, shots, you know? just talking to jd davis about that where he's just like uh you, you know just your ability you, you, to adjust and to see what's coming you know is so much better if you're playing every day uh, and then the last thing um you know uh, this is this is coming out this week but i learned recently that your um there are some fast twitch uh, uh abilities that you start losing uh that your body starts losing uh in as quickly as two to three days so, um, you know, if you're not playing every day, there's there's a chance that you're losing your 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 max bat speed uh, in those days because you're not even facing live pitching. So there could be an actual physical component to not playing every day that uh, that benefits you. So in Fraley, uh, I see someone who's projected for very similarly uh, by WRC plus, who's going to give you more speed and whose career is shaped in a better direction compared to um moncadas that's that's my uh thing for him i i do agree with you that uh if you just asked me those names and you and we were drinking at a bar i'd say juan moncada <laughs> but with the laptop with the, with with the, the information <laughs> yeah. right in front of you with a little more careful consideration it, yeah no it's a legitimate like, t- tough decision but i think it's going to come down to playing time and i, I still think there's there's one more year from Mankata to be an everyday guy before the White Sox start to look elsewhere oh, if, it, if it doesn't turn around. So I think you can make good on that. Uh, last question here. This also came from Mike, who sent us the Yohan Mankata question, was Ranger Suarez, are we believing what he's been doing more recently after that dismal start? Um, not really. There's a, a great uh, tweet from uh, Vlad uh, Rotogut. Yeah, Vlad Sedler. Uh, Vlad Sedler, um, that uh, where he actually predicted uh, Suarez's uh, current run earlier in the season. And his reasoning was uh, that he was going to get uh, right on the schedule. And I agree with him. I, I think he's just getting right on the schedule. Uh, if you look at his stuff plus numbers, they are still lackluster. Uh, he hovers between 80 and 90 uh, stuff plus. He does have average command and a wide pitch mix, but he's only had three, four appearances this year where his pitching plus was above average. So I think he's just a player that uh, hit a nice part of the schedule. I was pretty skeptical coming into the season. I do think if you look at the projections, kind of a upper threes ERA, 120s, maybe low 130s whip. What you see right now with the ratios is probably about what you get in a typical year. I think it's on the higher end. I mean, it, risk for with that because of the ballpark. whip, you know, and a 7, 7K9, you don't usually have a 338 ERA. Yeah, it's not a profile that I'd ordinarily want to chase. If I do chase that profile, it's because I like the park. I don't like the park for Ranger Suarez. So very schedule dependent. I think that's probably the tagline we're going to have on Suarez for the foreseeable future. Washington, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati at home, at Miami, Miami, at Washington. Yeah. 
Those are good spots. Those are all fine. Uh, yes, he did pitch well uh, Atlanta at home and at Cincinnati, but that's at Cincinnati after the trade deadline. Uh, they definitely uh, are not a very good lineup right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's uh, unfair at all to say about the Reds in their current form. Thanks a lot for those questions, Mike. If you have a question for a future episode, drop us a line: rates and barrels at theathletic.com, or you can drop a question in the comments section under the video on YouTube. Be sure to like this video if you're watching us on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, anywhere that would allow you to rate and review the podcast. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>